Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. You will see over the coming weeks uh, and months, um, and you're already seeing here this morning, uh, rolling out an updated Seven Rivers Church logo. Uh, We've had uh, as our logo, um, you might remember a green triketra. Uh, There's one up in the circle way at the top there, that triketra symbol, the symbol of the Trinity. It's been our logo for a long time. We last updated it in 2011, gave it an updated look, new color, Uh, But about a year ago, we started having some discussions, and someone said, uh, you know, if you, with that Triketra symbol, if you take the word Seven Rivers Church away from it, then I really don't recognize who it belongs to, right? It's, uh, that could be any of thousands of churches. Uh, And so we started asking the question, is there something that's more distinctive to Seven Rivers Church? Is there something that when you see it, just the icon by itself, you go, oh yeah, that's Seven Rivers. So, of course, the thing that stands out the most on our campus is this beautiful building and uh, the arches that are represented in the building and in other places. And so um, that's what uh, our team chose and came up with, um, these red arches that mimic the arches that you see throughout here. Uh, And um, uh, this has been in the works really since last year, Uh, worked through it in the fall. We felt that it was a good time uh, to do this with the transition to communicate that this is something both new and old, right? That uh, this is something fresh and yet established, that we're moving forward, but we're moving forward on a solid foundation. So uh, we'll be uh, trying to get this logo out uh, in all the various ways, lots of things to have to, uh, to, uh, to replace with it. Um, and along with this main logo, we have new updated logos for our student ministry, uh, for our worship ministry and for our children's ministry, uh, as long as, uh, as as well as a logo for uh, Camp Seven Rivers that you'll uh, be seeing. So, um, uh, looking forward to uh, the new new phase, new future, um, new season of life here at Seven Rivers. Um, so, uh, logos. Why do we do these things? Because logos matter. Um, symbols matter. Not in themselves, they matter because of what they communicate, right? what they represent, what they say. Marketers tell us that it's not just about the icon, it's about the brand. It's about the culture that exists behind the logo. So uh, here's a logo. Does anybody know what company this is? I heard one. It's Boeing. Boeing been in the news recently, right, because uh, of they, they sent a plane out of their factory without the requisite pins in the door plug, and at 16,000 feet, that door plug was sucked out of the plane and uh, endangered the lives of the uh, people on that plane. Um, they discovered in these things, along with other stuff that's going on with Boeing over the last years, that they have a culture of profits over safety. It's not surprising that you would have these accidents when your culture 
is one of profits over safety. Boeing has to work at their culture if they want um, their reputation uh, to be restored. Here's another logo of a company that you might recognize and perhaps love. Chick-fil-A, right? God's chicken. Um, in, the, in the early 80s, uh, Chick-fil-A had been around for you know, 15 or so years, and they, in, the, in the early 80s, began a big economic recession. Uh, many of you remember that. You know, if you think interest rates are high now, uh, in, the, in the 80s, um, they were crazy. And um, Chick-fil-A was started as uh, uh, restaurants in malls, and that's how they grew and expanded. As malls grew, they were in the mall space, but in the 80s, the malls were no longer being built, no longer being expanded, and so uh, their sales for the first time went down, and uh, they're trying to figure out what to do. So they got all of their executives in a room, and they asked, why are we in business? What's our purpose? Why are we here? What's really important? And the result of that was they crafted the vision statement that they now have and have had for decades for Chick-fil-A that says, they say, this is our culture, to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us, to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. That's their culture. That's, what's, that's why you see this logo, this brand, and um, you have good feelings about it. Because behind it stands uh, a culture. Uh, their food is great. People love Chick-fil-A because of their food, but also because of things like when you go and, and ask for something there, you're always greeted with and told, my pleasure. They're closed on Sundays because they want their employees to rest and worship I learned this week that uh, the average standalone Chick-fil-A store last year did $9 million in sales. One Chick-fil-A store. Um, when you have a culture uh, that is healthy, uh, you should not be uh, surprised when you see healthy results, right? Culture matters. Culture is the reason that you love shopping in some stores but won't go into others. It's why you love some airlines but won't fly on others. It's why some families always laugh and enjoy one another when they're together and others can't stand to be in the same room. Every church has a culture. You can have two churches with the exact same beliefs, the exact same doctrinal statements. They could even be in the same town and yet they can feel radically different. There's an atmosphere, a, a vibe, an ethos, a tone, a relational dynamic that communicates when you walk into a church, this is what we value. You see, you can have God-honoring orthodoxy without having God-honoring orthopraxy. You can be theologically sound, you can communicate biblically with your words, but at the same time undermine the very message with your culture. One pastor said this, said it may be safer to confess sin in the bars and clubs of our, of our city than in its churches. Seems to me that particularly in the cultural moment we now find ourselves, there's so much anger, polarization, and anxiety that a healthy gospel culture, more than anything in my lifetime, will be so magnetic 
so needed, so unusual, and so attractive to people who might not like what we believe, but who find that kind of beauty hard to resist. At Seven Rivers, we want a church that has a healthy gospel culture. We want to be a place where people don't just hear about Jesus, they also experience Jesus. They feel him when they walk in the room and when they come into the relationships with the people there. Culture is never static. Our culture is always being formed. And so we have to regularly remind ourselves, what is the gospel? What practical difference does the gospel make, should it make, in our community? I believe, by God's grace, that we have a very healthy gospel culture here now. But we always need to be working on it and growing in it. A healthy gospel culture is not something that you can set on cruise control. Uh, And so over the next seven weeks, we're going to seek to answer the question afresh, what does a healthy gospel culture look like at Seven Rivers Church? Um, We're going to talk about things like joy, welcome, uh, a a gospel culture of generations, uh, worship, community, mission. But this morning... We're going to start with what we think is the core, the the most foundational, the thing without which, if you don't have this, the other things don't matter, and that is a culture of gospel transformation. So if you're willing and able, would you please stand? Now I'm going to read a selection of verses from several different uh, places in the New Testament. It'll probably be easiest for you to follow along on the screens. Listen to the word of the Lord, which he chose for you today. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Of God. In John 15, 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Romans 1, 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 6, 14, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Acts 20, 32, now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And in 2 Peter three eighteen, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity, amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but not the word of God. The word of God stands forever. You may be seated, please. You might have noticed that in some of the verses I just read, that gospel and grace are used interchangeably. Where you might expect to see gospel, you see grace. Where you might expect to see grace, sometimes you see gospel, particularly in the Apostle Paul. When we're talking about 
the gospel, we're talking about grace. A culture of gospel transformation is a culture in which the grace of God is believed, experienced, and lived out. There is no gospel without grace. So, first let's talk about the definition of grace. The definition of grace. What is grace? Grace is the unmerited, unearned favor of God. Unmerited, unearned favor of God. Grace is the free gift of salvation. As Paul says, not a result of works. Grace is when love meets the undeserving. Grace is when love meets the undeserving. Uh, There is a, a high school basketball team in Gainesville, Texas. In fact, somebody came out after the service last night and said, we lived in Gainesville, Texas. Uh, small world, right? We, there's this basketball team in Gainesville, Texas. They're called the Gainesville Tornadoes. This high school basketball team is different from your typical high school because um, this high school is a juvenile correction facility for felony offenders. A few times a year, some of those young men get to leave and they get to play in some basketball games with uh, local private schools, but when they play, there, is usually, there are usually no fans, no parents come to watch them, no fellow students get out to come and watch them. Uh, but one time, they were playing Vanguard College Prep in Waco, and two of the young men on that team decided that it's not right. It's not right that that we have fans and, and, and they have none. And so they asked their fans, asked half of their fans if they would be willing to cheer for the tornadoes when they came. And so uh, these boys got to, came to the basketball game. Uh, the, the, the tornadoes did. They weren't expecting it. They had no idea. They walk out onto the court and to their shock, there are people there holding up signs uh, for each one of them. There are, they have their own cheerleaders Right, and half of the, the, the gym is cheering for the tornadoes. And as the game goes on, uh, eventually the whole crowd is cheering for them. Every time one of the boys scores a basket, the gym just lights up and the people go crazy. One of the boys after the game said, when I am an old man, I will still be thinking about this. I'll probably remember this for the rest of my life. Wouldn't you, if you experienced grace like that, undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor? Someone taught me a long time ago that grace, G-R-A-C-E, stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. That at the cross, Jesus, the sinless one, took our sins upon himself. He received the punishment, the wrath of God that we deserve. For our sake, Paul says, in our place, as our substitute, God made him who knew no sin to become sin. And in a gracious exchange, The perfect life, the holiness of Jesus now becomes mine. 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin is credited to Jesus. His righteousness is credited to us so that we then are forgiven. We receive the priceless gift of salvation. Unmerited favor, right? God's riches at Christ's expense. These are good definitions of grace. But I would suggest to you there's something crucial that we can miss even in these definitions. And that is this, that grace fully experienced is not a thing. Grace is not a heavenly currency that God doles out. Grace is a person. Grace is a relationship. When God gives us grace, he gives us himself. Grace is Christ uniting us to himself, fusing forever his life with ours so that we don't know where we end and he begins. It, it is so that he can say in John 15, verse nine, as the Father loves me, so have I loved you. That is profound. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Grace means that God the Father loves you as much as he loves Jesus. He loves us like he loves his own son. The other night I was putting our little guy to bed and uh, I mean so often um, we're exhausted at the end of the day. Uh, you know, the kids will probably do something right before bed that makes us mad and so we'll just wanna chuck them in there and shut the door and go watch some TV, right? And, and so there's so many times where I don't do this but for whatever reason, uh, I as put him to bed, just crawled into bed with him, this bunk bed, got under there and got, got down next to him and I, I said to him, Fisher, do you know that you're my son? Do you know that I love you? Do you know that there's nothing that you can do to make me love you less? And there's nothing that you can do that would make me love you more. I'm crazy about you. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Joseph Cook writes this, he says, this then is the wonder of grace, that God is this kind of God, that he loves me with a love that is not turned off by my sins, my failures, my inadequacies, my insignificance. I am not a stranger in a terrifying universe. I am not an anomalous disease crawling on the face of an insignificant speck in the vast emptiness of space. I am not a nameless insect waiting to be crushed by an impersonal boot. I am not a miserable offender cowering under the glare of an angry deity. I am a man beloved by God himself. I have touched the very heart of the universe and have found his name to be love. And that love has reached me, not because I have merited God's favor, not because I have anything to boast about, but because of what he is, because of what Christ has done for me in the Father's name. 
As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. If you are in Christ, then God cannot love you any more, and he cannot love you any less than he loves Jesus. That's grace. That's the gospel. So what about transformation? Those of us who've been around church for a while, we've heard about the gospel before. We understand that grace is the way that you enter into a relationship with God, but what about growth after that? Because it's obvious that when you believe in God, he doesn't just like wave a magic wand and now um, we're sinless. We can become instantly perfect, far from it. We still sin, we still doubt, we still struggle. So what are we to do? What about transformation? Here's a lie that many of us have been told. We've been told that the message that non-Christians most need to hear is grace, but the message that Christians most need to hear is discipleship. Non-Christians need grace, Christians need discipleship. Christians do need discipleship. We think grace is what saves you, but grace is not what transforms you. We think you're justified by grace, but sanctified by works. And what I wanna remind you, what I remind myself this morning, is that grace doesn't just give us pardon, grace also gives us power. Grace is not just pardon, but also power. Grace is not just unconditional love. It is also transforming power. Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, right? the good news of God's unmerited favor. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Total salvation, past, present, and future, the power of God for salvation. Grace is not just forgiveness to enter the kingdom of God, but also fuel to live in the kingdom of God. Grace is the A to Z of the Christian life. We never move beyond our need for grace. We only move more deeply into grace. In fact, we grow best in the fertile soil of grace. Because remember, again, grace is most fully a person. Grace is Jesus. Your need for Jesus didn't stop when you were converted. Gospel transformation means growing more and more in your relationship with him. You know, in healthy marriages... We can look at our spouse after two decades and say, I love you more today than I did on the day that we got married. Our love is deeper, it's stronger, it's more mature. If you're a Christian, then the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You have the godly desire to grow. But what stunts our growth is that we forget the power of grace and instead we we fall back into the impotence of the law. Look again at, at Romans 6, uh, 14. Paul says, for sin will have no dominion over you. Some translations say sin will no longer be your master. Sin will no longer have power over you because you are not under law, but under grace. One quote I read this week said, we all have God's love inside us waiting to be accessed and trusted, available to address our sins and failures, our hopes and dreams. It's all there, untapped, 
while we're running around trying to impress God with promises and self-denial. Our problem is we believe God loves us because he has to, but we're convinced that he doesn't really like us. He's not pleased with us. He's standing up there with his arms crossed, shaking his head, thinking, I had such big plans for this kid. So what do we do when we feel that way with, about God? We get to work. We buckle down. We get disciplined in the hopes that maybe God and I will feel closer if I do more right things and do less wrong things. The Christian life becomes a self-reformation project where we expend copious effort merely to establish new habits. We live on a performance treadmill. Like Shel Silverstein's uh, story, The Little Engine That Could, he would not stop as he neared the top and strong and proud, he cried out loud, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. He was almost there when crash, smash, bash, he slid down and mashed into engine hash. Which goes to show, if the track is tough and the hill is rough, thinking you can just ain't enough. When we try to grow by the law, by our own efforts, we either end up becoming self-righteous because we falsely believe that we've done good enough, or we fall into self-despair because we can never make it up the hill. Either way, the problem is that we're looking to the law to do something it has no power to do. The law on its own can produce short-term compliance, but it cannot produce long-term transformation. John Bunyan famously wrote, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. How does the gospel, how does grace give us wings? How does it transform us? Grace transforms us because it motivates through love, not through shame. Shame says, you'll never be good enough. Love says, I know you're not good enough. That's why I died for you. Shame says, why can't you be more righteous? Love says, you are already righteous. You have my perfect righteousness. Shame says, if you were a real Christian, you would have arrived by now. Love says, you're right on time. Shame uh, puts external pressure on us to change and become something that we're currently not. Love says, I have already changed you. You are a new creation, so now mature into who you are. Shame coerces surface level rule keeping. Love calls forth. It woos out heartfelt obedience. Truett Cathy, founder of Chick-fil-A, one time they were opening a store in a mall and he was working with the owner operator of that store, this opening. So Truett's there as was his custom. He's walking around and he's handing out Chick-fil-A samples uh, to the customers and this operator tells the story. Um, he says that as Truett returned to the kitchen to get a fresh plate of samples, he said to the operator, that girl over there isn't smiling. 
to which um, he pointed to Martha. Uh, He says she seemed to be having a bad day and certainly was not smiling. So this operator said, I went to Martha and I told her she was to smile at the customers and walked away. When Truett returned for another plate of samples, he said, she still isn't smiling. I said, I'll see that she does it this time. But instead, Truett stopped me and said, I'll take care of it. He writes, I was puzzled. What did he intend to do that he thought would be better than the instructions I was giving her? I watched. Truett walked up to Martha and said, why is it that every time I look at you, you're always smiling? She did give him a little smile, but it didn't last. I thought, that's not gonna work. But I kept my eye on her and Truett. The next time he passed by her as he went into the kitchen, he said, there you are, smiling again. She gave him a bigger smile that lasted a little longer. He says, by this time I was giving my full attention. I was watching the two of them. Truett would return from sampling to smile at Martha. Every time he did, she would smile. Soon Martha was wearing a big, beautiful smile that lasted the rest of the day. He said, that day I learned a great lesson. Truett never told her what to do, but he clearly and simply made it attractive for her to do what he expected. The law tells you what to do, but it has no power to make you do it. Jesus and his grace come along and make it attractive to do what he expects. Um, I was reading a book um, called The Cure, and uh, the, the premise of the, of the book, the beginning uh, of the book, is it's, it's envisioning the Christian life uh, as, a, as a journey, and uh, you're on this journey, and you start out you're converted, you, you believe in Jesus, you feel like you're close to Jesus, but then as time goes on, you know, um, you sin, you fail, you let him down, and this, this mound of trash begins to build. This, this heaping pile of your sin and your brokenness and all of your failures, and, and after a while, it feels like there's this mound between you and Jesus, that Jesus is on the other side of the mound, and, and, and you think, if I can just get this stuff cleaned up, then he and I can be close again. And so I'm reading this book, and it's, it's uh, as I'm reading, I was at my daughter's volleyball practice, and I'm sitting on the, the sideline reading the book and weeping. <laughs> uh, my daughter's probably thinking, am I playing that bad? <laughs> um, overcome by grace. And this is what I read before God was always over there, on the other side of my sin, obscured by the mound of trash between us. But now I realize he's here with me. I can picture it as clearly as if it's happening. He puts his hands on my shoulders, staring into my eyes. No disappointment, no condemnation, only delight, only love. He pulls me into a bear hug so tight it knocks the breath out of me for a moment. At first, I I feel unworthy. I want to push away and cry out, I don't deserve this. Please stop. I'm not who you think I am. But he does know. And soon I give in to his embrace. I hear him say, I know. I know. I've known from before time began. I've seen it all. I'm right here, I've got you. 
And now I'm holding on with all my might. He stays right there in the moment until he's certain his love has been completely communicated and received. Only then does he release his grip so he can turn to put an arm around my shoulder. He then directs my sight to that mound of filth now out in front of us. After several moments with a straight face, he says, that is a lot of sin, a whole lot of sin. Don't you ever sleep? (laughs) He starts laughing, I start laughing. Gazing at that mound of pain, I considered that I never thought I'd experience this kind of moment. All of the pain, regret, and damage of my life are laid out in front of me. All that have caused shame and condemnation, all that have caused me to pretend and impress and yearn for control, all that have broken my heart and his. But now I'm viewing it with Jesus' arm around me. He's been holding me with utter delight, all with my sin right here in our midst, never allowing it uh, between us. He wants to know me in the midst of this, not when I get it cleaned up. I know now that if this mound is to ever shrink, it will be by trusting this moment for the rest of my life. He looks back at me. We'll deal with this when you're ready. I've got your back. The gospel of grace and only grace has the power to transform us more and more into the image of Christ. Grace has the power to turn shaky pretenders into confident dreamers. It can turn miserably independent strivers into wonderfully dependent receivers. It can turn cynical and smug judges into safe and discerning encouragers. It can turn anxious self-protectors into daring lovers. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen here. He's doing it here. So if we believe in grace, if we're letting Jesus transform us into people of grace, then what kind of culture should that produce in a church? A culture of gospel transformation, a culture of grace. What is the vibe? What is the ethos? What is the the tone? Just, uh, we could say many, but just three brief applications. The first is, A culture of gospel transformation, a culture of grace produces a culture of honesty. Culture of honesty. Those who've believed in grace and experienced its transforming power should be the first to tell the truth about themselves. We should be the first to line up to confess. One time a a pastor ran into a longstanding church member at the store Uh, She'd been going through a crisis and hadn't been at church, which was unlike her. She'd been there for, had not been there for a few weeks. So when he ran into her, he told her how much she had been missed and how wonderful it would be to see her in church again. She told him that she couldn't come until she was doing better. She didn't want people to see her while she was feeling life was a mess. She said, I'm waiting until the storm passes and I've got things back together enough to walk back into the church building. Her words are heartbreaking, right? Because the church should be the place that we sprint to when things are at their worst, not the place we avoid until we've got our Instagram-worthy Christianity back in place. Church should be a safe place to be a mess, 
to confess our sins. We're all broken. None of us has it together. None of us are doing fine. Do you know what fine stands for? Freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. So if you're doing just fine, then welcome home. Pull up a chair. We can stop pretending to be good Christians. There's no need to wear a mask at church because when you wear a mask, only your mask gets loved. The gospel of grace gives us the freedom to be fully known and fully loved on our worst day. So a culture of honesty and also a culture of patience. I always go back to a pastor uh, I had uh, asked me in seminary, are you willing to give others at least the same amount of time that God has given you? In your spiritual journey, are you willing to give others at least the same amount of time and patience that he has given you? In a culture of gospel transformation, we remember that all of us are in a process. It's unusual for growth to happen quickly, so we're patient with one another. We let love cover a multitude of sins. We critique gently, encourage fiercely, and call out the good daily. There's a uh, Japanese artist, um, uh, Christian uh, man, uh, and he's an expert in what's called kintsuki art. Uh, kintsuki, here's a picture of a kintsuki bowl. Uh, the kintsuki bowl is, a, is a, a tea bowl that was passed down through Japanese families from generation to generation to generation. Some of these bowls, hundreds of years old, and somewhere along the line, this bowl was dropped and broken. And a Kintsuki artist came along and painstakingly, slowly, the process takes two to three months, put this Kintsuki bowl back, mended it back together using, using gold and glue, and so that the end result, right, is far more valuable than before it was broken. So we should look at one another and say, we've been redeemed. Please be patient with me. God is making something beautiful out of me. It's got all kinds of cracks. But where he's taking me is far more beautiful and far more valuable than where I am right now. And then finally, a culture not just of honesty and patience, but also a culture of fighting. I like that word, fighting. Like, wait, this, okay, I'm confused. What do you mean? The culture of fighting. Uh, you remember in Vietnam, the, the, uh, the Battle of Le Drang, uh, it's in that um, movie, We Were Soldiers, where um, the uh, U.S. forces are uh, outnumbered by the Viet Cong and taking heavy fire, and the, the young man there, who's the cameraman there to capture is uh, his camera gets shot out of his hand. He, he falls down to the ground in the fetal position, and uh, Sergeant Major Plumley comes along and throws a gun into his hands. And the, the, the uh, photographer says, sir, I'm a non-combatant. To which Sergeant Major Plumley says, ain't no such thing today, boy. Well, if you're a Christian, there ain't no such thing as a non-combatant. You're called to fight. 1 Timothy 6.12, 
Apostle Paul says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Fight. Fight the good fight of the faith. Wait, I, I thought you said that we're not under law, we're under grace. Doesn't being under grace mean that we relax? You know, uh, like I just kind of sit in this hot tub of grace and just chill. No, that's not what it meant. It's not what it meant for the Apostle Paul. We're called to fight the good fight of faith. But here's the thing about fighting. We don't fight for acceptance. We fight from acceptance. You hear the difference? We don't fight for acceptance. We fight from acceptance. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not soft on sin. Sin management is soft on sin. But grace is not soft on sin. Grace and obedience are not a dichotomy. There are indicatives and imperatives both in the Bible. There are things that are true about God and true about us, the indicatives. And then there are things that God tells us that we are to do, the imperatives. The indicatives always precede the imperatives and the order cannot be reversed. Who God is, who we are in Christ, always comes before what he tells us to do. If you reverse that order, you end up in a works-based religion. The indicatives precede the imperatives. It's fascinating that the last exhortation of Paul to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, as he's uh, um, getting ready to leave, and you think you've started this church, and now you're going to, this is your last thing you get to say to them, encourage them, exhort them, whatever. You might say, don't forget to read your Bibles. <laughs> don't forget to pray. Don't forget to, to love one another. Don't forget to, you know, anything he could have said. What does he say? This is Paul's uh, last exhortation to them. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. You're gonna lean into anything. I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. We are called to fight, to grow in grace. R.C. Sproul, uh, I heard him tell a story, the late R.C. Sproul, uh, theologian um, and uh, pastor, one time early in his teaching career, he was tasked with teaching uh, 250 college freshmen in a course, an introduction to the Old Testament. And uh, so he gets there the first day of class and he gives him the syllabus. He says, here are the, the tests that you're gonna have to take. And in this class, you have three term papers, okay? Short papers, just five pages, three little term papers. They're due on September 30th, October 30th, and November 30th. And make sure with these term papers that you come prepared with them, you turn them in on the day that they're due because unless you're sick in bed or unless you're in the hospital or unless someone in your immediate family has died, if you don't turn in the paper on the day that it's due, you will get an F. Everybody understand? Yes. September 30th comes. Out of the 250 students, 225 students come with their term paper. 25 terrified freshmen come trembling in the back door of the class, right? Professor Sproul, we didn't budget our time properly. We haven't made the transition from high school to college like we should. Would you please 
Have mercy on us. Please don't flunk us. Could you give us a couple more days to turn in our paper? He said, all right, all right. Okay, I'll give you a break. This time, just this time, uh, you, got, you can have three more days to turn in your paper. But next time, you better come with your paper. Oh, yes, oh, yes, thank you so much. Yes, yes, of course. October 30th comes. This time, 200 students show up with their term paper. 50 students don't have it. Stroll says, where's your paper? They say, listen, professor, you know how it is. You know, uh, it's, um, there's uh, uh, midterms going on. We got all kinds of assignments for our other classes and super busy. It's homecoming, and so there's a lot going we, we just, could you give us just a little bit more time? Uh, we, we promise that we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get it turned in. And, uh, and, and Sproul says, I told you guys last time, there were 25 of you last time, I said, you better make sure that you bring your paper in on time this time. Now there's 50 of you. They said, we know. He said, okay. This last time, I'll give you three more days and turn in your paper. And he said at that point, the, the whole class, all 250 students started started breaking out in song, praising Professor Sproul, and he was the most popular professor on that campus until November the 30th. <laughs> November 30th rolls around. This time, 100 students come with their term paper. 150 students don't have their term paper. Sproul says he watched as those 150 students strolled into the class so calm, so cool, so collected, and, uh, and he saw one of them. He was a former uh, Marine uh, named Johnson. He said, Johnson. I said, yes, yes. Do you have your term paper? He said, hey, hey, professor, don't worry about it. I'll get it to you in a couple days. Sproul went over and took the grade book off the lectern, and he said, Johnson, you don't have your term paper? No. He said, F. He said, McIntyre, you have your term paper? No. F. Pratt, you got your term paper? No. F. And out of the crowd, a voice cried out something that you might expect. That's not... Fair. He said, Fitzgerald, is that you? Did you say that? I said, yeah, it's not fair. Yeah. Sproul said, were you late last month with your paper? He said, yeah. He said, all right, Fitzgerald, here's, what's, here's what I'm going to do for you. If it's justice you want, it's justice you'll get. And he opened up the grade book and he took his grade from October and turned it into an F. And a gasp fell along the room. And he looked around and he said, who else wants justice? <laughs> no takers. Here's what happened. The first time they were late, 
they were amazed by grace. The second time they were late, they were no longer surprised. They basically assumed it. The third time, by the third time, they demanded it. Grace is my inalienable right, an entitlement to which we all deserve. Brothers and sisters, we will have a culture of gospel transformation if we don't let ourselves grow numb to grace. To the degree we are amazed by grace, amazed that Jesus would want to make undeserving wretches his own, that is the degree to which we will grow. And we will be a place where others will walk in and they'll immediately feel it. They'll sense that something's different here. There's something that I've been longing for my whole life. It's the gospel. It's grace. It's Jesus. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts so that we might be born again again, that we might never cease to be amazed by grace, and that being amazed by grace, it would transform us. Give us a gospel culture of transformation, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.